Praise the Lord. This morning in our communion series, we turn to the book of Galatians once again. Would you turn there with me this morning by opening up to Galatians 5, verses 1 through 15. The first half of the chapter will consider this day under the title, The Offensive Cross. Paul speaks about the cross itself, the concept of Calvary, as something offensive to the fleshly, natural, or sinful man. We'll find in context why that's the case. We'll find conversely why the cross is the most glorious and precious news of all for those whose eyes have been awakened to appreciate its purpose, its meaning, the gospel itself. The aim of this morning's message is to therefore convey the seriousness and usefulness of Paul's exclusive gospel. The seriousness and usefulness of Paul's exclusive gospel are featured in these admonitions, these instructions to the church in Galatia, as he points them back to the cross, which is an offense to so many, but which is the only hope of salvation for anyone who will trust and believe. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word today, out of reverence for what He has written down, immutably and infallibly for us? Listen as the Word of God is proclaimed in your hearing today, Galatians 5, 1-15. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But I, brothers, still preach, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Would you turn over with me one book for a cross-reference? By way of introduction, this is Ephesians, the letter that Paul writes to another church, chapter 6. Paul's closing exhortation to the Ephesian church is remarkably similar to the admonitions in Galatians 5. If you'll notice the introductory phrases of our text today, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Here's the admonition. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is similar language, similar admonition appears in Galatians 6. In both cases, the apostle pleads with the church to stand firm. Listen, Galatians or Ephesians 6 verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Goes on to describe the forces of evil we stand against. And then he says, verse 13, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and he goes on to detail the armaments that sufficiently enable the believer to stand against every scheme of the enemy. The Ephesians are addressed again. You don't need to turn there, but on your own time, you can study Revelation chapter 2. This time, the admonition comes directly from Christ Himself in John's vision. The Ephesians hear Christ's command to return and to repent, to repent and to return to their first love, because they had lost the foundation in their affections of the hope and stay of the gospel. 
And so they became, to a certain degree, subject to the wiles and the schemes of Satan. We can safely assume that in the course of the Ephesian church, as in the course of the Galatian church, their temptation, they both fell into temptation that uh, to leave the purity and clarity of the gospel and to listen to the schemes of the devil, and thus they needed to gird themselves once again with the armor of the Lord and stand firm in what the Apostle Paul, Christ himself, through his servant, had delivered to them by way of gospel truth. God commands the church to repent and return to their first love and his gospel that first inspired them. From these parallel passages, we can deduce a warning, church, can we not? This is the warning in so many words. Established churches can easily be subverted and corrupted if they do not diligently contend for the gospel in its purity and its clarity. A church should not draw reassurance from anything else than what is represented at the table of the Lord this day. The elements, the ground, the foundation, the purity and clarity of our salvation represented here in the broken bread and in the spilled cup, as it were, the body and blood of Christ. We must return in our attention, our affections, the foundation of our worldview, of our thinking, of our hermeneutic, of our understanding of Scripture, again and again to the purity and clarity of the gospel, and thus be girded with the full armor of God. And if those means are not availed of by the church, even today, as it was in Galatia and Ephesians, we ourselves could be easily subverted and corrupted. So, Paul exhorts us through this letter to the Galatians and the Ephesians to take heed to the gospel and to stand firm. In the case of the Ephesians, Paul encouraged them to stand against, quote, the schemes of the devil. He indicated that their most formidable enemies were not the obvious evils, you know, the things that on the outside are painted a red with horns and pitchfork and so forth, the sort of caricatures of what a culture affirms as something that is wicked. They're more, much more subtle. The enemies that he described were not of flesh and blood, but instead they were rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. And in Galatia, our text today, it is apparent that these forces found a Trojan horse in adding to the work of Christ, the work of man, in ceremonial law-keeping, insisting on the necessity of circumcision for salvation. What is a Trojan horse? You guys remember the mythical account of the defeat of the great uh, city of Troas or whatever? And the walls could not be breached. But the enemy army got smart and they created this huge uh, colossal horse and inside were several soldiers. And when the morning came and the inhabitants of Troas looked upon looked over the parapets of their walls, they saw this curious thing on wheels. They're like, what is this? And they drag it inside. Night falls, and the subversive forces, the enemy army, just a handful, exits the horses. And I recall, I didn't do any research for this, but they set ablaze the city and conquered the city by this means. You see, the analogy, the picture is that the enemies are subtle. They're crafty. They're schemes that the devil uses to perpetrate his evil on the church. And these are the things that the gospel in its pure and clear form prepares us to defend against, that we might have discernment so as not to drag Trojan horses of gospel-compromising ideas, ideals, philosophy, uh, major trends, movements, and so forth, cultural mores into the walls of the church and corrupt the whole. In Galatia, this took the shape of recasting the gospel to include the necessity of circumcision as a partial ground for salvation. Paul railed against this corruption. This is exactly the kind of enemy which the armor of God is designed to conquer. In our passage today, we are instructed in the ways of spiritual conflict modeled by the Apostle Paul. He ferreted out the enemy, he pointed his finger directly at the problem, and he said, repent of this sin and avoid and reject this heresy and false teaching, and so return to the purity again and clarity of the truth. The Galatian heresy of legalism is no match for truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. And those are the armaments in Ephesians 6, and Paul uses these concepts 
in his application and admonition in Galatia to the church of Galatia as well. So let me give you a heading, and we'll consider three points under that heading, and then a summary point. Paul reinforces his admonition to the Galatians by identifying three things in our text today. Number one, what is at issue? If they continue to believe this twisted form of gospel, what is at issue? What are the stakes? Secondly, he reinforces his admonition by identifying the actual gospel. Again, the purity of the only truth that saves. And number three, he identifies the adversaries, the false teachers and teaching that would subvert them. And then fourthly, we'll close with a summary admonition and reprisal. And this speaks a little bit to the structure of our text. Notice in 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore. And then in verse 13, there's a reprisal of this admonition. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as opportunity for the flesh. So he opens with a call to the freedom, a Christian freedom in Christ, and then he closes this portion with a call, a reprisal of that admonition and as it relates to Christian freedom. So that's a basic structure for our text today. First of all, Paul reinforcing his exhortation or admonition to the Galatians by identifying what is at issue. Notice verses 2 through 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. What is at stake? Christ Himself and the advantage of Christ's death on your behalf. That is what is at stake. That is what is at issue. Furthermore, verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So freedom from the condemnation and the demands of the law as an instrument of salvation, that is also at issue. Welcome to drudgery. Welcome to an impossible standard. If you embrace this, you are, re- you are bringing down condemnation upon your own head, and Christ will be of no advantage to you. He f- goes on, verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified for the law, you have fallen away from grace. So in summary, three things are at issue. First of all, I'll call it covenantal exclusion. So the covenant of grace itself is at issue based upon whether or not these people will believe this teaching that has corrupted the church in Galatia. Secondly, justification, where Christ looks upon us, where God the Father looks upon us and sees only righteousness. That is, that we have been rendered just, that a forensic declaration of holy has been declared over our life on account of what? On account of our works? Never. Let it be said. It could not be the case. It is impossible. We cannot perfect ourselves. How will a dirty, a cup of dirty water clean itself? How will the tea be separated from the original water? These analogies show the futility of perfecting ourselves. We must have an, what Luther called an alien or other righteousness, a righteousness of someone else granted to us because we otherwise, without this imputation, are always and only sinners. So this is at stake, justification. Finally, grace. The whole concept of unmerited favor as the ground for our salvation, mercy granted by another, that is at stake as well. Do not submit to a yoke of slavery, Paul tells the church. Why? Because the covenant of grace is at stake, your justification is at stake, and grace is at stake as well. Covenantal exclusion, what does this mean? Well, when Paul says that Christ will be of no advantage to you, advantage to you. If you accept circumcision, what he is pointing out is trusting in something added to the work of Christ to assure you of your salvation. The works of man or this ceremonial law-keeping as ground of your hope uh, for eternal life. If you uh, act according to that teaching, you are presuming a different covenant entirely. In other words, God has laid out the terms of his relationship with us. And in the structure of ancient covenants, there's a basic framework. There's an introduction of the sovereign party. The sovereign party retains the right and, and guards it jealously and exclusively to establish the terms of the covenant. That is the relationship with the lesser party. After the sovereignty is affirmed, it's proclaimed, then there's a history of that relationship between the greater and the lesser party. Thirdly, there are stipulations 
There are certain laws that must be abided by or terms uh, accordingly that are laid out. Uh, fourthly, there are uh, oaths and, and uh, uh, punishments or blessings that attend this uh, arrangement. And then finally, there is means for the continuation of this covenant. So when we take that framework as a basic you know, outline of covenant, who is it that is sovereign? Who is it that is King of kings and Lord of lords? Who is the greater king that establishes this relationship with his people? It is the Lord of glory. It is God himself. And he has dictated the terms. He has said through the authoritative proclamation of his apostles, it is by grace through faith alone that you're saved, not by works of righteousness, because then man, in so many words, could boast. So God has jealously guarded the terms, the ground of salvation to be grace alone. So if we come up with an augmented form, if we manipulate and twist, add and adjust these terms, what are we doing? We are subverting in that act the authority and sovereignty of God, and we are making up our own terms of covenant. We are, as it were, charging up to the throne, the sovereign throne of the King of Kings, and elbowing in Him and saying, move over, move over, I want to sit there. This gives you a picture of the wickedness of the Pharisees. What was it? I mean, these guys were pious and righteous on the outside, were they not? They were some of the most disciplined and well-learned people in their day, uh, you know, externally speaking. But deep inside their heart, there was a real problem. The Pharisees had established their own set of rules, and they had elbowed God in the ribs, so to speak, as if you could, and said, move over. These are the terms of covenant, and they presumed to establish certain laws that God had not prescribed. And in so doing, they were subverting the authority and sovereignty of the Lord, at least attempting to do so. So what was at stake in the Pharisees' sin? Great judgment. They had cut themselves off from the knowledge of Christ. They were not sympathetic to the gospel. They were hard-hearted. They were whitewashed on the outside, full of dead man's bones on the inside. And as I recall in Matthew 23, I believe that Christ, uh, He reserved His harshest and strictest language of judgment for people who would assume that position. This is, there is an exclusive nature to the covenant. Christ will be of no advantage to those who establish different terms. If they pursue circumcision as a saving work, even in part, they are threatening God's authority and He will not be mocked. If you stand beside the Lord, you will be cast down. If you seek to subvert His will and intentions, you will be destroyed. You will either repent for your malfeasance or you will be judged. You are thereby obligated to keep the whole law, Paul says. So if you want to uh, disregard this covenant of grace, whereby faith alone in God's saving work alone you're saved, if you want to come up with a new idea, well, welcome to the new standard which you must uphold. You must keep the entire law. Salvation by or assisted by human effort assumes a different covenantal arrangement than in the covenant of grace. As such, it stands as a blasphemous affront to God. And so this is at issue here. This is why Paul, like, like Jesus, reserves such strong language to condemn this uh, adjusted or this altered so-called gospel. In disregarding the covenant terms God has established and substituting our own, we posture ourselves as a sovereign in our relationship with God. So this is what is at issue. Also, he goes on, justification. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. At issue is justification. If justification remains by the law, that is, by our own law-keeping, we are severed from Christ. Go ahead, try it, but you will ultimately and only fail. You know, we think of the great righteous men of old. We've been studying Noah of late, and we see in his testimony one who had favor with God. And we see, yes, evidence of his righteousness, and it is remarkable. You know, Noah was just one of eight people who were saved from whole-scale judgment at that time. And his testimony does speak to us of a certain righteousness that we can emulate, Hebrews 11 comes into view. But as is the case with every other hero of Scripture aside from Christ, soon enough we see his shortcomings, do we not? 
That is to say, was Noah justified by law-keeping? Absolutely not. Noah, like Abraham, was counted righteousness because of his faith in the one to come. Noah offered sacrifices. Why? Because he and his family needed them. Not, and these sacrifices typified that a substitute must die in the place of him and his family because they, like the rest of mankind, born in Adam, were corrupt and sinful at core. And only, only grace was the hope of their salvation. God grace, grace, graciously gave His word to Noah to build the instrument of salvation for he and his family. And God graciously supplied the ultimate ark in Christ alone to spare all who place faith in Him, all who are covenantally in Christ. Justification is by uh, faith, it is not by law. There is a sense in which Christ has kept the law and thus fulfilled the covenant of works and, uh, whereby uh, God had told Adam in the beginning that if you keep the law perfectly, it will be uh, unto your eternal life. And of course, Adam fell short, but there was a second Adam who kept the law perfectly, and that is Christ our Lord. So now, the only hope for righteous law-keeping is for those who are in Christ. Are you going to be the third Adam? Do you think you could be the fourth Adam? Ridiculous. You were born in Adam and thus are corrupt from day one. Your only hope is for a blood transfusion, spiritually speaking, from the second Adam that you might be justified. Grace. Grace is unmerited favor, as you know. And here, our author, Paul, he says, you have fallen away from grace. And what is this? This is classic apostasy language. If you hold to this altered theory of, uh, of the gospel, you are demonstrating yourself as apostates. That is, you are leaving the uh, ground and exclusion of salvation by grace alone and showing you didn't understand it in the first place, falling away from your once professed faith. Later, Paul is optimistic. He believes that his words of exhortation and warning will have an effect and that ultimately this church will reject these false teachers. He is not so much optimistic about the false teachers themselves. Notice what he goes on to say. He says in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So these are fighting words. Because there is so much at issue. The covenant is at issue. Justification, justification is at issue. Grace is at issue. Second major point, Paul reinforces his admonition to the Galatians by identifying not just what is at issue, but the actual gospel. And this occurs in summary form in verses 5 and 6, beautiful concepts and language. Notice, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In the actual gospel, there is a causal chain. It's not grace plus our works equals justification. What is this causal chain? Well, in summary here, it is through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. Notice it is not by your righteousness, with the help of the Spirit, you eagerly await for uh, the hope of heaven or something like that. No, the hope of righteousness is that which God uh, credits to our account that Christ Himself has secured, and this causal chain begins with, sovereignly, not by our works, but by the work of the Spirit, and it is operating according to faith, not according to works. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. This is the passage in verse 29 and following, often called the golden chain of redemption. Here, Paul expands the causal chain, that is, the, uh, the cause and effect relationship for those whose hearts have been changed by the gospel. Here it is in Romans 8, 29 and following. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. So foreknowledge, predestination, causal chain. To be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those who He also called, He also justified. 
and those whom He justified, He also glorified. And then verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Did you notice in that causal chain, there's not a single work of yours or mine that is responsible as the cause of our salvation? These are all the sovereign work of the Lord. Therefore, Paul can say, what can we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, if you place the works of man in the causal chain of salvation, that verse 31 cannot be written like that. It's rather, if we be for us and God be for us, who can be against us? I got news for you. If you are the one that you are trusting in to be for you, you will also be against you yourself. You will self-incriminate. You will disqualify yourself because there is no merit or holiness or power in and of yourself born in sin, born in Adam, by which you can be saved. But if God is exclusively the source and cause of our great salvation, then we can say with reassuring hope and absolute confidence, if He is for us, who can be against us? No one can be against us. Neither famine, nor persecution, nor distress, nor tribulation, nakedness, danger, sword, even ourselves and our own Uh, feeble attempts to please the Lord can render us separated from the love of Christ. So Paul is, again, reiterating the causal chain is a sovereign work of the Lord as he details the actual gospel. Romans 8, 29, 31 is a great expansion and parallel, a great cross-reference for our passage today. Chain of events that affects salvation, it's through the Spirit, by faith, wherein we have the hope of righteousness. Paul goes on in Ephesians 2.8 to say that even this faith is a gift of God. It is not of ourselves, otherwise we could boast about it. This is a compressed version of the golden chain, as it were. Consequently, so there is something that Paul refers to built upon this knowledge. Verse 6, for in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So because the causal chain of the gospel is entirely the work of of a sovereign God, the triune Godhead, consequently, type and shadow are obsolete as they are fulfilled in Christ. So what was circumcision? It was a mark by the hand of man on the flesh, but it spoke of something to come. It spoke of a mark upon the heart by the hand of God. So this act that that typified, that spoke of, that symbolized the act to come, it was obsolete after Christ has come. And this is why to resurrect this action as a ground of salvation is to disregard its substantial fulfillment in Christ. Notice at the end of Romans 2 again, verse 28, "...for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly." nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so to return to these former things as the hope and ground of our salvation is to return to the external, to the outward, to this type, to the shadow, to the symbol, to the flesh. But to recognize that these things are substantially fulfilled in Christ is to realize the gospel. Your heart has been changed. And those who have a covenant with the Lord and its effects have cut the heart as it were, have transformed from the inside to be in conformity to Him. Herein lies the true hope for salvation. This is the actual gospel. Key factors, Paul lists in closing of verse 6 for in Christ there is neither, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision which count for anything. But what does count? He says, but only faith working through love. So these former ceremonial activities, they do not count uh, toward gro- gospel ground and assurance. But two things do, faith and love, or faith working through love. Think of the love of Christ that is demonstrated in His saving work. And when this is realized by faith in the life of a true believer, this establishes communion, sweet fellowship, and the hope of our salvation. 
Again, I point you toward the elements at the communion table today. Think of the act of Christ when He set aside His former glory or veiled it for a time, took on human flesh, was born of a virgin Mary, and stooped so low to enter as a single cell and then to grow as an infant and to be born of a woman to fulfill the law of God, to fulfill what had been prophesied and prescribed by God the Father as the only way of salvation. And not only this, not only humbling himself to take on the form of a servant, as as Philippians tells us, but even going to the excruciating, humiliating execution by Roman uh, capital punishment, the instrument of wicked torture, the cross itself. Who would do this except one who so loved his own that he would take on the burden of the cost of their redemption upon his bruised back and bleeding brow and pierced hands and pierced side and pierced feet. The scriptures say that we love him because he first loved us and gave himself for us. And there is no greater love than this, than a man would lay down his life for those that he loved. And faith in this act alone and the awareness of the hideous nature of our sin deserving this kind of judgment and then the awareness of the compassion and love of the Lord expressed in this act stirs true faith and allows us to see the actual gospel at the table of our Lord today, even as it's pictured and these elements. This is the kind of faith that is stirred and working through love recognizing the love of God that He had toward us in that He first loved us while we were still sinners in enmity with Him, rebels against the Lord of glory, yet dying in our place, that by His sovereign act, by His work on Calvary, we might be resurrected from the death of sin and join Him in sweet communion forever one day, ultimately pictured at the marriage supper of the Lamb, which this meal today anticipates. Point number three, Paul is reinforcing his admonition to the Galatians by identifying what is at issue, the actual gospel, and then number three, the adversaries. Verse seven, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? If the Galatians could answer that question, they would know who their enemies were. Who were their chief enemies? They were the ones, the teachers who would take and twist and manipulate the Scriptures to serve their own ends, to cater to the misguided appetites of the flesh, to reconstruct in their image a different gospel, a different church, and so forth. These were the enemies of the church, and Paul was declaring war against them. He says, verse 8, This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. You are being convinced and persuaded, manipulated. You are submitting to the propaganda of of enemies in a Trojan horse, that have a veneer of righteousness and piety and truth. They might speak well, but there is poison and venom like venomous serpents underneath their tongues. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will uh, will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Troubling you? You know, to the Galatians, they were excited at the news. They were really attracted to these teachers. It didn't trouble them. Why? Because their discernment at this point was broken. They needed again, as we said before, the armor of God to realize the centrality of faith, righteousness, helmet of salvation, the gospel of peace, the belt of truth, the sword of the Spirit. If they were armed with these, the understanding of these things central to the true gospel, to the actual gospel, as we have described, then they would have heard this twisted false teaching and it would trouble them. It would not sit easy with them. They would not be attracted to it. But they would recognize there's a glint of a wolf-like eye underneath that sheep clothing. There is a snarl in the lips of this false teacher as he proclaims underneath this attractive veneer, this twisted form of so-called truth. These are the adversaries. Paul first makes an inquiry. He says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Next, he deploys discernment. He says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. Thirdly, he illustrates this by leaven. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's verses 7, 8, and 9. There's a confrontational examination that Paul is deploying here. 
Who hindered you? Identify and mark the false teachers and teaching. This is a demonic source of persuasion. This is the devil at work in your midst. Take it seriously. This convincing and appealing message is not from the Lord. It is instead like leaven. What is leaven? Does anyone know what leaven is? Um, We use leaven in cooking or something like it. Does anyone know what it is? Yeast. Very good, Israel. So in order to get a loaf of bread to rise, how much yeast do you need? A lot or a little? Kids? Just a little. Once the yeast is mixed into the dough, can you pull it back out again? No. No. And what happens to the dough when the yeast is in there? Does it change it? Does it affect it? It does. What does the yeast cause the dough to do, kids? Causes it to rise. So think about the, those things, those elements in this analogy or illustration. Just a small amount can corrupt the whole. It's impossible to separate it by normal means. And as it takes its toll, it fundamentally changes the nature of the dough. And Paul is saying, exercise discernment. Be diligent, be vigilant to guard the purity and clarity of the gospel because just a small alteration is like that corrupting influence in the dough. It affects the whole. It's hard to separate and it corrupts everything if you let it run its course. You might be tempted to think, well, it's interesting and I want to keep an open mind and who's to say and isn't that just your interpretation? You hear all these things that people justify listening to other voices in the wind, but there is one voice that speaks clearly and truthfully, and it is the voice of the Spirit, primarily using the instrument of His Word, which rightly divided will give you sufficient armaments to fight against that which would otherwise corrupt you. There's a great argument for understanding the Scriptures, for loving God's Holy Word, for diligently seeking them out, for being a good student like the Bereans who even tested Paul's words to see if they measured up according to the teaching of Scripture is in fact in part your duty to do that every time the Word is proclaimed to you, even from this pulpit, even today. Why? Because the adversaries, they use uh, these deceptive uh, little changes and so forth that can grow to corrupt the whole. Uh, Second uh, portion, so these adversaries, that Paul speaks of their influence, but then he contrasts that with his apostolic authority. He says in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord, that you will take no other view than mine. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul is put in this position several times in his ministry where he defends his authority. And read carefully, Paul is not doing so on the basis of pride. He doesn't take it personally and like like he feels slighted and um, he is personally offended that the church... Um, he's done so much for them and everything else, and why? And, and now you're not taking my words seriously? No, the reason that Paul returns the believers to his teaching is because of his office and role in the formulation and the foundation of the early church. He is an apostle commissioned by Jesus Christ to bear the words that authoritatively establish an understanding of the gospel for the Galatians and for the church of all time, for the Ephesians and for a cross Lake Providence Community Church today. And so this is why Paul returns to the apostolic witness, so should you. When you see all these different books being written, and you see new improved ideas, and you see the church getting distracted and enticed by different and various winds of doctrine that blow across the landscape of culture today, go back to the apostolic witness. Study the teaching, the preaching of Paul and Peter and John from the early pages of Acts all through the epistles, and see if what you are hearing today measures up. Because apostolic authority and the message of Paul's gospel is the gold standard. It is that which should be set up to see if what is being proclaimed and preached measures up. If it falls short, reject it. You were running so well. Throw it out so you can continue to run. Don't be hindered from obeying the truth. Don't be a sucker. Don't be susceptible. Don't be gullible uh, to the persuasive influence of these so-called new and improved ideas. Finally, Paul speaks of the offensiveness of the cross. This also is the title of this morning's message. He says, But if I, brothers, verse 11, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. This brings us back to the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Jesus said that those who follow Him will experience animosity from a wicked world. 
One barometer of truth is if persecution is a reality. The world hates the gospel. The world hates the cross. The world is fundamentally opposed to the teaching of Jesus Christ. So listen closely. If you change the teaching to accommodate itching ears, you will fall into the trap of the Galatian church. I heard it said once, do not rob the gospel. You could say, do not rob the cross of its power to offend. To the unbeliever, what is offensive about the gospel? Why do they find it a message they are at odds with? Several reasons. The gospel excludes the possibility of glory shared by any other. It excludes glory for yourself. You cannot claim any virtue unto yourself. You cannot claim any work has even helped with your salvation. The message of the cross, Christ alone, excludes the possibility of glory shared with another. Another reason why it's offensive. It demonstrates your sins are worthy of death. Your sins are worthy of, of death. I remember the lyrics to a Taylor song. He used to be my favorite guy to quote to illustrate sermons. Uh, one of his songs went like, they, went like this. They don't grade here on the curve. We both know what we deserve. Jesus is for losers. Why do I still play to the crowd? What he was saying is that in that kind of quip, Jesus is for losers, is in order to understand the message of the cross, you must, must understand that you are a complete loser. And they don't grade here on the curve. What he means by that is righteousness is not measured relatively against Hitler. You know, Hitler in our culture is the most wicked person we could all imagine. And so we set up Hitler. Oh, my word, he was just the devil incarnate on earth, and he wielded this holocaust. But let me tell you the reason why our culture is infatuated with Hitler. Because we want to look at Hitler and see that we are more righteous than him, and then say to ourselves, I am a good person. After all, I didn't kill six million Jews. After all, I didn't, I'm not a despot, you know, with the bloodlust for authority or whatever else, you know, you know, pick your... And so this, conveniently, in our culture today, the, you know, these despotic historical figures, they serve as a false atonement. We see them as a scapegoat. We see ourselves justified in light of them. But we must understand that a righteous and holy God does not grave on a, grade on a curve. Any infraction that you might deem small that falls short of His glory is worthy of death. The wages of sin is death. This is part of the offense of the gospel. Because Why did Christ have to die? Because your sin deserved death. My sin deserved death. That is an offensive message. I'm not all that bad. I've never killed anyone. What? I don't deserve it. You know, these are the common objections that we hear, the attitude of our culture today. The cross preaches a different message entirely. Thirdly, the gospel and the cross is offensive because it is the only offering available to satisfy the demands of a just God. It is the only offering, it is the only perfect, unblemished Passover lamb when John the Baptist declared, behold, the Lamb of God, that definite article, the, was on purpose. It's exclusive. It is only, there is no other sacrifice that will ever, has ever, could ever be offered to satisfy the demands of a just and holy God. And finally, just by my brief overview today, why is the cross offensive? It's because, in part, it does not fit the popular notion of heroism today. We don't imagine our heroes as suffering uh, men hanging on a cruel instrument of torture. We like to think of our heroes as merely victorious, crushing their enemies, making a mistake. Christ did exactly that. But there was a pathway to triumph, and it was through the cross. And there was a reason for this, as we've said. So here we have it. Paul reinforcing his admonition to the Galatians by identifying what is that issue, the actual gospel, and the adversaries. Uh, and then he closes with a reprisal of an admonition in 5.1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not commit, submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then verse 13, as our passage closes, he reiterates some of this language. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So Paul begs the church of Galatia, do not submit to this yoke of slavery, which is the false teaching, another gospel. But he says, contend, fight for, stand in, stand firm in the freedom that you have in Christ, Christian liberty. But there are three things, freedom from what? We mentioned, as I mentioned, it is freedom from the yoke of slavery. That is to say, freedom from the law as condemnation over you. Why? Because Christ has taken the condemnation on your behalf. There is freedom in Christ, in the true gospel, there is freedom from the ceremonial trappings of the law, namely circumcision as necessary for salvation, as we see by way of example in our text today. Thirdly, there's freedom from self-headship, acting as your own agent of salvation, which is a a futile enterprise anyways, the only headship that is saving is the headship of Christ. So there's freedom from these things, but there, this freedom can be abused, and there's freedom unto something else. So Paul says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Do not use your freedom, this is verse 13, as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So we have just emphasized to a great degree through the course of our preaching how the righteousness that we have is on the basis of Christ's work alone. It is by grace that we are saved. And by this, we have obtained great freedom. But the next message is as follows. Freedom unto what? Freedom unto God-glorifying law-keeping. That is correct. The law does have a place in the life of a believer, but it is, as others have noted, the fruit, not the root, of our salvation. For those who aren't, Luther said it this way, as I recall, Justification is by faith alone, but it is not by a faith that is alone. If we were to abuse our freedom, we would use it as an occasion for the flesh, and Paul warns against that as well. He says, don't take opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This opportunity for the flesh, how Paul expounds on this notion, you can touch on in your own study in Romans 6, you know, therefore shall we continue in sin that grace may abound more? No, how can he who has died to sin, sin any longer? Identifying with the work of Christ is key to understanding the transformative work that has taken place in your heart. And now the call is to live accordingly, to live out as worshipful expression of your joyful appreciation of what Christ has done for you in faithfulness unto Him, in obedience and conformity to His Word. So, We see then in our text today, this perspective, works are pursued not as an instrument or means of salvation. Instead, uh, works are pursued as a glorious result, an overflowing fruit, and a joyful obedience on account of our salvation. This is the difference. It is interesting because Paul seems to indicate here that if one pursues righteousness according to the flesh, it will actually yield Uh, sinful fruit. In other words, later in verses 19 and 20, we see a list of the works of the flesh, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and so on. If the Galatians were to continue in this false teaching, their so-called gospel would yield this kind of fruit, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, This is the kind of fruit that legalism produces. These are all sins of schism and dissension, creating strife in the ranks, comparing ourselves among ourselves, building our pride, establishing in ourselves ground for boasting. But if we recognize that by grace alone we are saved, this becomes the foundation for all other relationships. And we suddenly can welcome a horrible, decrepit sinner who has manifested his wickedness in all kinds of forms of depravity, into our midst when he repents and believes, and we can instantly, upon that regeneration, interact with him as a brother because we know the ground of salvation is not based upon our works or merit, but exclusively on the unmerited work of Christ. And so Paul is laying out a vision for this church to thrive. He is readdressing the foundation, and then he is also reiterating fruit that should follow. Freedom unto God-glorifying law-keeping, mindful of the fruit and root distinction. Paul emphasizes the abiding validity of the moral law in the life of the believer, and he further expounds it, and as will we in future messages, Lord willing, 
as the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. So we've examined the root and we'll examine the fruit in further weeks. But let me turn your attention back once again, as I've done several times in this message, to the Lord's table. Paul is pointing the Galatian church back to, as Christ did with the Ephesians, their first love. It is Christ who was crucified that was their hope of salvation. It was His work alone that secured for them eternal life. It was Him and only Him that is the hope and foundation for a healthy church, one that honors the Lord, produces fruit for the kingdom moving forward. Let's remember that at the Lord's table today as we receive these words of admonition in our own years, ears, thousands of years after the Galatians first heard them. Nevertheless, as relevant today as they have ever been. Let us transition in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had in your holy word. And now we thank you that your table is open for the believers in this room. I pray that as we partake of these elements, that you would return us, Lord, in very tangible ways in our soul to the reality of Christ's death on our behalf. And that we would remember his completed work and redemption, his resurrection and ascension for the right hand of the Father. And I pray that as we do so, that you would clothe us in the armor of God, that you would fortify us with all of those armaments that we need to stand against the wiles and schemes of Satan, that we might have the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, wielding deftly in our hands, trained by the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, which can rightly divide the word of truth, divide asunder between soul and spirit, which can recognize false teaching, reject it and return us to the source and authority and our hope and stay, our salvation, the Word of God and the Word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for these means that you have given us. Thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.